Okay, we're going to read together Galatians 1, verses 1 to 10. Paul, an apostle, not from men nor through man, but through Jesus Christ and God the Father, who raised him from the dead, and all the brothers who are with me, to the churches of Galatia. Grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ, who gave himself for our sins to deliver us from the present evil age, according to the will of our Father and God, to whom be the glory forever and ever. Amen. I am astonished that you are so quickly deserting him who called you in the grace of Christ and are turning to a different gospel. Not that there is another one, but there are some who trouble you and want to distort the gospel of Christ. But even if we or an angel from heaven should preach to you a gospel contrary to the one we have preached to you, let him be accursed. As we have said before, so now I say again, If anyone is preaching to you a gospel contrary to the one you have received, let him be accursed. For for am I now seeking the approval of man or of God? Or am I trying to please man? If I were still trying to please man, I would not be a servant of Christ. An error that was blighting the baby congregations in Asia Minor and modern day Turkey. An error that impaired the unity of the church and impoverished the grace of the gospel. And Paul is writing and he's defending his ministry. There are accusations being made against him saying that, well, Paul, you have diluted the gospel to make it palatable, acceptable to the Gentiles. And so Paul writes in response and his his message in this letter is clear. His argument is strong and his language is sharp as he wards off this two-pronged attack which questions the sufficiency of grace to save and the authority of the Apostle Paul to preach. Paul was their church planter, their founding pastor. He, he writes to these congregations probably, a little group in Pisidian Antioch, in Lystra, Derby, and Iconium, churches that were founded during Paul's first missionary journey. Now there's lots of debate as to where Galatia was and which were the Galatian churches. We don't need to know that. But Paul's writing to churches and he had founded them and he is saying here, Skipping past the conventional greetings, he wants to get straight to his point. Reading verses 1 to 3, Paul, an apostle not from men nor through man, but through Jesus Christ and God the Father who raised him from the dead and all the brothers who are with me to the churches of Galatia. The central issue of the letter, the most important question that any of us could really ever speak of or think of is this. What is the gospel? And this is a message which Paul rushes to address. I've just finished reading Jared Wilson's little book, uh, The Gospel Driven Church. And it seems to me like it's a book that, that didn't need to be written. There are many such books. But the sad reality is that in each generation, Christians have found reasons for the church to exist other than the proclamation of and the implementation of the gospel. 
And first, Portadown Presbyterian Church must ever pursue its commitment to be a gospel-driven, gospel-focused, gospel-hearted congregation. So to be able to do this, we need to know what the gospel is. What is the gospel? And that really is what Paul is going to answer over and over again throughout this letter to the Galatians. And that's where we have to begin this morning. What is the gospel? Let me uh, summarize it all in, in one little sentence. It's a message about one person for one purpose to gain one prize. It's a message about one person for one purpose to gain one prize. It's a message all about one person. It's a message about Jesus. When a Presbyterian minister comes to be installed as the teaching elder in a new congregation, he has to come with credentials from the sending presbytery. And if your credentials are not in order, you cannot proceed with the installation. And Paul, right at the start, makes a defense of his authority. He he argues for the, the right of his words to be heard. And he makes it clear that that he is an apostle and he has been given authority, not by any group of men, not by any church court, but directly from the Son of God. Paul's credentials are from Jesus. His supernatural commissioning by the Savior took place on the road to Damascus. And he was set apart for this very specific Ministry, this particular calling to bring the good news of the gospel to the Gentiles. So Paul's preaching of the gospel had its source in Jesus and its subject as Jesus. It's a message all about one person. It's the gospel. John Stott puts it like this. He said, apostolic authority is divine authority. Now, there are still people today, as there were 2,000 years ago, who really, for various reasons, do not like what Paul writes. They, 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 they don't like his message. And we need to understand that if we would choose to disagree with Paul, we are setting ourselves in opposition to Jesus, under whose authority Paul is preaching. It's as if you were going to argue with Paul and Paul says, look, if you have a problem with what I'm saying, don't speak to me. Speak to my boy. The gospel has its source in Jesus and its subject is Jesus. Look down just into the the start of next week's section. Paul writes in verse 6, he says, you are so quickly deserting him. Him. When, When people ignore Paul's message, when they disregard gospel proclamation, when they disagree, uh, it's not some theological fine point that they're arguing about here. They're turning their backs on Jesus because the message of the gospel and the person of Jesus are tied together inseparably. For the gospel is a message all about one person. It is the gospel truth and truth matters. Paul here speaks about what he calls this present evil age. That's where we live. We live in this present evil age and in this age in which we live, people are saying and screaming at us that that truth is a choice. You can claim your own truth, whatever you want it to be. 
whoever you want to be. So I, was, I, I heard this week about young people in a school in America who are choosing to identify as cats and dogs. And high school teachers are going on special courses to be trained how to deal with these young people and their, what's now called their fursona, their their furry identity. Or, Or just before Christmas, 20th of December, the Daily Telegraph carried an article about a woman, a 20 year old woman in Oslo, in Norway, who identifies as a cat. She claims she's a cat trapped in a person's body. Paul knew this would happen. He warned in Romans 1, 21 to 25, he writes, Although they knew God, they did not honor him as God or give thanks to him, but they became futile in their thinking, and their foolish hearts were darkened. Claiming to be wise, they became fools and exchanged the glory of the immortal God for images resembling mortal man and birds and animals and creeping things. They exchanged the truth about God for a lie and worshipped and served the creature rather than the creator who is blessed forever. Truth matters. But we live and breathe the air of a culture that has exchanged truth for a lie. That worships creation and not the creator. A culture that cries out that you have to be true to yourself. And all the while ignores Jesus' call to deny yourself. People are are pursuing their true selves and as a consequence they are becoming lost. In darkness for time and eternity. They are deaf to Jesus' cry in Matthew 10, 39 where he says, Whoever finds his life will lose it. And whoever loses his life for my sake will find it. See, the truth we choose to live our lives by will deeply impact us forever. And while the world declares you can choose your own truth, Jesus says, I am the truth. There is no other source of truth than me. All other pursuits are self-destructive. So the gospel is a declaration about truth. It's a message all about one person, about Jesus Christ, who is the truth. And what is the gospel? It's a message with one purpose. To rescue us. To deliver us from our sin. The gospel is all about rescue. Verses 3 to 5. Grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. Who gave himself for our sins to deliver us from the present evil age. According to the will of our God and Father. To whom be the glory forever and ever. See in other letters that Paul writes. He takes time to express thankfulness for the faithfulness of the congregation. Or he takes time for a prayer for them. or, Or words of commendation to them. But not here. Here, Paul gets straight to the matter. He wants to tackle head on the issue at hand because the eternal salvation of the members of these churches is at stake. Can you imagine? It's a ridiculous idea. One of your neighbors looks out the window and sees your house is on fire. And so they ring up to tell you that your house is on fire. And the conversation goes a bit like this. Hiya, Robin. How are things? How are the grandchildren of the well? Oh, here you were up the north coast the other day. Did you have a nice few days up there? The weather was good. I hope you got out to see that beautiful landscape. 
Oh, and our team won yesterday. It's about time we won. We needed a win. Oh, and by the way, your house is on fire. That would never happen. We want desperately someone to, on the other end of the line to get straight to the point. To ensure that we are warned. To help us be safe and to survive. In the book of Ezekiel. In Ezekiel chapter 33. Uh, God the Lord speaks through the prophet. And, and speaks of this imagery of a watchman. Someone who is to guard the people and warn them of the approach of an enemy. And there in Ezekiel 33 verse 6 we read. If a watchman sees the sword coming and does not blow the trumpet so that the people are not warned and the sword comes and takes any one of them that person away is taken away in his iniquity but his blood I will require at the watchman's hand Paul understands that he fulfills this rule as the watchman He has the souls of men and women, boys and girls in his hands. And although now he's at a distance from the Galatian churches, he is fully aware of the the dangers against their spiritual well-being. And he seeks to warn them and prepare them. And this was a message that he was constantly having to give because the danger always reoccurred. Remember how when he was with the Ephesian elders, they were together on the beach at Miletus as Paul was journeying to Jerusalem. And he brought them these words of caution in Acts 20, 29-30. He said this, I know that after my departure, fierce wolves will come in among you, not sparing the flock. And from among your own selves will arise men speaking twisted things to draw away the disciples after them. So to the Ephesian elders, Paul warns them of wolves. And wolves are dangerous to the church. And they are particularly here a danger to the churches in Galatia. And one of the problems with wolves is that identifying them is never that easy. Peter Haas has written a book. It uh, has a title that just rolls off your tongue. The title is Pharisectomy. How to joyfully remove your inner Pharisee and other religiously transmitted diseases. And he writes this. Most of the people who destroy the body of Christ do so under the pretense of protecting it. The great irony is that most wolves see themselves as super sheep. And there will always be wolves. There will always be those who twist the word of God. Who seek to mar the message of the gospel for their own ends. And clearly they had arrived in Galatia. After Paul and Barnabas had moved on from their uh, work as missionaries. And they came to the Galatian churches and they said. Well we, we, know, we know Paul, Paul. Good lad Paul. Good preacher Paul. But you know there's so much more you need to know. So many other things you need to, to learn about. Yes, oh yes, you need the gospel, you need Jesus, and you need. And in this case, it was living under the Jewish laws and customs, and particularly to be circumcised. You need Jesus, and. Whenever that word and is added, serious error always results. And the message of the wolf among God's sheep is this. To be a Christian you must believe in Jesus. And 
There's so many things you could add into that blank space. Some of them are quite amusing. Some of the ones that we have here and we prescribe within our own fellowship are, are, are amusing. But it's a serious matter. The great reformer, Martin Luther, helps us to understand the gravity when he writes this. He said, the sin underneath all our sins is the lie of the serpent that we cannot trust the love and grace of Christ. And that we must take matters into our own hands. You see, it's, it's the curse of human pride that tells us that we have to have a part to play in our own salvation. If, if we don't do it, it can't be done right. Uh, and we struggle so much with the, the message that challenges and, and confronts our self-sufficiency. Messages such as the, the familiar words of the 18th century American philosopher and theologian Jonathan Edwards. And he said this, he said, the only thing you contribute to your salvation is the sin that makes it necessary. Paul writes with the one purpose of the gospel. It's to rescue. And it's a rescue that's fully and finally secured for us through Jesus Christ upon the cross. Who at the Father's will gives himself for our sins to deliver us from this evil age. Just look at that little phrase in, in verse 4. He gave himself for our sins to deliver us. See, it's voluntary. Jesus gave himself. It's substitutionary. It's for our sins. It's propitiatory. He delivered us from the wrath of God. And Paul wants you to hear this message. He wants you to understand that you can trust a God who bleeds for you. And you must. Only God can do this. Martin Luther uses the lovely little image saying that sin is a knot that only God can untie. And on the cross, Jesus cried, it is finished. Nothing more is required. There is no Jesus and. In the gospel, he has done it all as we have said. There's another old hymn puts it like this. Weary, working, burdened one, wherefore toil you so? Cease your doing, all was done long, long ago. Cast your deadly doing down, down at Jesus' feet. Stand in him, in him alone, gloriously complete. No wonder this gospel message was so important to Paul, so precious, so powerful at work in his life. For if ever there was anyone who could have Pharisee their way into the kingdom of God, it was Paul. This man, Saul of Tarsus, who ticked every box, who kept every rule, even to the persecuting of the church, which he believed was God-honoring. But he was transformed, and this transformed apostle Paul realized that all his great achievements, all his good living, were, were not a help in his following of Jesus. They were a hindrance to him. They didn't bring him into a right relationship with God. They blinded him to his need of a savior. And until he was physically blind, he could not see. But he could see now because he was rescued in his helpless state by the nail-pierced hands of his savior. In his book, Christless Christianity, Michael Horton of Westminster Seminary in California writes, 
A church that is deeply aware of its misery and nakedness before a holy God will cling tenaciously to an all-sufficient Savior. While one that is self-confident and relatively unaware of its inherent sinfulness will reach for religion and morality whenever it seems convenient. What is the gospel? It's a, a message all about one purpose, to, to rescue us from our sin. And finally, what is the gospel? It's all about the gaining of one prize. And the prize is the glory of God. One of the terrible tragedies, one of the, the uh, mistakes that we've made is uh, recent decades, the message of the gospel has had one purpose, all about getting people into heaven. And you think, that's exactly right. Is that not what the gospel is all about? No, it is not. There's something amiss if the preaching of the gospel is only about you getting your down payment on your mansion for heaven for whenever you die. That solely man-centered perspective steals glory from God. Billy Graham's grandson, Tullian Chavidian, writes, The gospel frees us to realize that while we matter, we're not the point. We're not the point. And when you understand this, you realize that, that God is glorified when you believe in him. And when you depend upon him and him alone for your salvation. And through this your, your life is liberated to worship him. And to give him glory. And to enjoy him forever. That's our chief end. To glorify God and enjoy him forever. That joy comes when we rest in Jesus' finished work. C.S. Lewis said it's the Christian's duty. As you know, for everyone to be as happy as he can be. We, we live lives of joy because we, we have this great confidence in Christ's finished work and, and it liberates us to rejoice. I mentioned Richard Verbrand recently, the Romanian pastor who spent time in solitary confinement in, a, in deep darkness, a cell underground, deep buried in the ground. And there were times when he was imprisoned there that he danced with joy. And he jested about the, the, the tambourine that the guards had given him to help him in his praise. The, the, the shackles on his arms. He beat these together and it enabled him to praise God better. And he tells this story. He said that there was once a fiddler who played so beautifully that everybody danced. A deaf man could not hear the music and considered them all insane. Those who are with Jesus in suffering hear this music. To which other men are deaf. They, do, they dance. And do not care if they're considered insane. When we know the liberating power of the gospel at work in our lives. We, we dance with joy. And nothing can shake our joy. Not the worst of, of circumstances. Paul knew what it was to be in the deep darkness of a prison cell. And there in the, the depth of night at midnight. He worshipped God and praised and sang hymns of thanksgiving. And Paul, who knew a dungeon life, writes from a dungeon and said, Rejoice in the Lord always. I will say it again, rejoice. Philippians 4 and 4. 
Paul's joy in the Lord in the worst of circumstances brought glory to God. It turned enemies into brothers. It turned idolaters into worshippers of the living God. It declared God's glory before a perishing world. Yes, God's gift of salvation to us is wonderful. Yet the prize is not our ticket to heaven, but the glory that belongs to Jesus. The glory that he receives when we, with heart and soul renewed in him, praise and serve him with all our lives and enjoy him now and until we see him face to face. Let's pray together. Father, we ask that you would teach us the truth of the gospel. Yes, we may have known it all our lives, but we ever need to be reminded Our thinking needs to be corrected. Our hearts need to be redirected to you. For often we make it about ourselves. We make it about our destiny. We make it about a lifestyle that we direct and control. Forgive us. May it be all about Jesus. Our focus on him. Our gaze filled by him. Our hope resting upon him. Not in anything we have done of ourselves. Not even in the faith that we have. Because Christ has loved us. And claimed us and rescued us. We rejoice. So may our lives be lived to your glory in each and every moment. As we give you thanks for the hope of the gospel. The good news of our Savior Jesus Christ through whom we pray. Amen.